You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa. I'm also the CEO and founder of Rock, Paper, Scissors, a PR firm that specializes in music and technology. And as you know, we are digging into all aspects of music tech here on the podcast and at the conference. And uh, today I've got a great guest. I'm excited. Coming in from Melbourne, Australia is John McCubbery. He's the Vice President of International Sales and Marketing at Korg USA. Welcome to the podcast. John, how are you? I'm great. And can I just correct you? I'm actually vice president of Korg International, not just Korg USA. So ah, okay. My office is actually in Tokyo in non-COVID times. So, <laughs> Right. And, and you're in Melbourne, but you're normally in to- Tokyo. I'm normally on a plane because I go to Tokyo. <laughs> it, I, I spend about six or seven months a year away from home. Um, I go to Tokyo to the office every month for a week or two, then to Korg USA, Korg UK, Korg Europe, Korg other places, and uh, visiting distributors, dealers, studios, musicians, the whole thing. This must be a strange year to be sitting still on the ground for so long. Oh my God! Yes, my dog actually no longer barks when I walk through the house. It's a great, it's a great thing. No, well, our, our kids are growing up, so you know, it's it's uh, they're all you know college and everything. But um, it's uh, it, it, this is the first time the the most time I've spent at home in about thirty years. Yes, I'm, I feel the same way, although I'm not normally on a plane like you. You know, maybe once or twice a month I'm going to a, a music conference or right. going to meet clients or something like that. But man, it's got to be so different from you. Um, well, this is so great. I appreciate you making the time today, John. I, I read a little bit about Korg's origin story online. Um, and, you know, even though I've bought and played Korg uh, instruments, I didn't realize the, the origin story. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the, the first couple of instruments that Korg founders Sutomu Ketu and Tadashi... Sutomu Kato. Sutomu, Sutomu Kato. You just threw yeah. me then. Um, <laughs> Mr. Kato-san has always been the way I refer to him. Kato-san was running a nightclub and he had a band uh, performing at the nightclub and uh, the the organist complained that it was difficult getting drummers to turn up, which hasn't, of course, that's never happened since. <laughs> and so uh, he said, you know, if I had enough capital, I could build a drum machine to to basically play along with. And Kato-san said, I can fund that. And together they developed a thing called the Donkomatic. And the Donkomatic was the first, you know, rhythm machine pretty much in in, in the music world. And on the basis of that, um, Kato-san said, you know, what other ideas do you have? And they started developing variations on the rhythm machine and then eventually got in more engineers and decided to branch into the growing field of electronic music. And Kato-san was uh, different from what a lot of people imagine a, a Japanese entrepreneur businessman to be. He was really trying to do things that were different. Everything's always been about, we don't copy. We're not interested in copying. We can see an idea and then say, wait a minute, we know where you think you are going. Why don't we try and do that? Or we do completely new things. And, and so throughout the late 60s and early 70s, we developed um, you know, one of the very first synthesizers. Um, and it doesn't matter about all the names and model numbers now, but... Um, uh, uh, Mieta-san, who's one of the 
great Yoda geniuses of all time, was responsible for analog filters for other companies' synthesizers, I won't name them, uh, as well as developing the MS-20, which was an extraordinarily innovative synth in 1978. And from then on, Kato-san was thinking, well, we can see where electronic music is going, we can see where popular music's going, how can we jump ahead and give musicians things to aspire to and things that are different? And, and one of the great stories that Mieda says is that when we decided to do a really faithful recreation of a Hammond organ, but as a very small, you know, digital, um, easy to p carry around keyboard, um, a lot of the music stores around the world said, no, no, no one wants that. Everyone wants synthesizers. Mm. And yet when it came to market, it proved to be phenomenally successful in the late eighties. Um, Karasan was on a roll and we developed a keyboard called the M1, which is one of the first, it was the first real workstation, the first PCM based synth, which means it was using samples. And um, it was the first time someone had a realistic acoustic piano sound in a portable, in the synthesizer. Still, I think one of the biggest selling synthesizers of all time. And it led to a whole lot of other um, workstation innovations and the theme the, the reason that I'm uh, kind of laboring this theme of going in a different way is because Steve Jobs famously said we don't do market research because people don't know what they want until you show it to them you know and when <laughs> I can tell you when Carter son saw that he said exactly that's exactly right and so when we had music stores around the world telling us, don't build workstations, everything's going to software in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s, we did the exact opposite and doubled down on workstations. And of course, it turns out um, a huge number of musicians were performing live, still wanted them. They weren't going to take laptops on stage. And so, you know, for a, about two years, we had the market almost entirely to ourselves. And it's not because we were innovative, it's just because we were trying to think in advance of where people uh, were thinking. Um, in 2015, as part of our uh, 50th at that time anniversary, we uh, put out a, a reissue of the MS-20 Mini. And I can tell you, having spoken to the biggest dealers in the world, everyone said, this is a gigantic mistake. No one wants this. It's monophonic. It's got no programs. It's got no effects. It was only mildly successful in the in the uh, 1970s. For God's sake, can't you instead give us, you know, an, a range of products that were just me two copies? Well, on the second day of the NAM show, when that thing was released, we had dealers bombarding the stand saying, I've sold my entire annual allocation. You've got to increase production which, of course, we'd already factored in because we knew that one of the problems with experts in the business is they're experts on today. They're not necessarily thinking about the future. That seems like a roundabout answer to your question, and I apologize if it seems like oh, I no, didn't get great. into nitty-gritty. But what I was trying to say is that the philosophy is think different. And so we, start, we, we pretty much pioneered the analog re-revolution of, of the, the 2010s, the last 10 years. Um, and we've been sell we've sold the largest number of analog synths of any company. In fact, probably of all the other companies combined, we've outsold them in the last seven or eight years. And I'm not saying that in terms of two and three and $4,000 products, sometimes as low as $150. But 
we we tried to figure out where people were really making music as against the people who love to go to NAMM shows with terribly out-of-date hairstyles <laughs> because they can't let go of the past. And they, they keep saying things used to be so great back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 60s, you know, pick the decade. Right. Um, and, and we just don't want to think that way. We're thinking, no, 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 you know, why aren't we thinking about where people are going? How can we meet them? How can we do things that are different? One of the innovative products we did in the 1990s was a thing called the Chaos Pad, which was an effects unit, you know, reverb, delay, chorus, flange, that was entirely driven by putting your finger on a touchpad. And I remember meeting music store owners saying, who in the world wants to use something with a touchpad? Well, that was, <laughs> you know, 15 years before the iPhone, uh, you know, and, and the touchscreen world that we're now in. Um, and that just came from listening to a young engineer who came in one day saying, you know, I've been messing around with an idea at home. And Cardo has always been big into, okay, show us what you've been doing at home. So when we had software companies coming to us 15, 18 years ago saying, oh, look, we want to uh, license, uh, you know, this one of your famous synthesizers from the past. It doesn't matter about the model. Uh, and, you know, we'll give you a royalty and we're just going to do a software emulation of it. Cardo said, I don't think so. And all these young guys basically in the lift, the, the classic coming up the lift said, you know, I've been working on software at home. Fantastic. Show us what you've done. And we came up with component modeling technology, a much deeper emulation, uh, you know, uh, way of doing software that led to much more realistic versions of our instruments. We retained ownership and we were years ahead of the other hardware manufacturers who said, ah, this software thing's just a fad. It'll pass. I, I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just saying once you get used to this mindset that don't get driven by the way people see the world today. You know, we, we, we've got to be thinking in the future. We're trying to help musicians, creators, producers of the future, not just today. Then it actually liberates you into doing things that everyone says won't work until they do. <laughs> incredible, incredible. I, I, I'm so. I asked you one question, and I feel like I've, I've just dived into this, this genetic essence of Korg, which it's crazy. Like I've been following Korg. Like I said, I've, I've, I've played some Korg instruments, and I'm always, I always get this sense that there's this, this uh, innovation mindset that's present there. And to hear that that's exactly how it started in, in the early '60s, and continues with these types of stories of innovation that take place just by a, somebody in leadership listening to a younger engineer talking about what they're tweaking at home, and then to go against the current. I mean, this this whole thing about hardware versus software is like a pendulum that just keeps swinging back and forth, and people want to make very strong determinations about where things are going based on one or the other. And here you guys are sometimes saying, "Oh no, 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 it's going to be the hardware," and then sometimes saying, "Oh no, 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 we're not messing around with the, you know, we're, we're going to do some crazy stuff with the software." It's it's so interesting to watch. And I'd, I'd love to say we're unique, but we're not. If you think about the original Sony, PlayStation, Microsoft, Xbox battles, and then Nintendo comes out with, you know, uh, the Switch, those the cool Wii little and the devices Switch. <laughs> and the Switch. And, and instead of going for, you know, young guys wanting to do machine gun battles, thinking about, well, what about kids? What about parents? What about families? You know, you can get caught up in the 
uh, there's a phrase, you know, everyone wants, everyone thinks this. And the minute I hear everyone thinks, I know I'm in the wrong stream. I have mm. to get into another room because no one can say everyone thinks. It's, it's you know, I mean, and the classic example is smoking. Well, you know, <laughs> there's still a huge percentage of the population that smokes. Uh, probably not that great for you, but it, it fills other needs, obviously. You know, everyone knows is a very dangerous and suppressive way of thinking. And we try not to work that way. Incredible. John, this is already a blast. We have to take a quick break for an announcement. But when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about this swing between hardware and software. We'll be right back. Does your company belong at the center of the conversation about music tech innovation? Listen, you should consider sponsoring the Music Tectonics Conference. The top tier sponsorships are selling fast, but we still have some slots for you, whether your business is a hungry startup or an industry leader already. Get sponsor benefits at our online events October 25th through October 27th and in-person events outdoors by the sea in Los Angeles on November 2nd. It's going to be awesome. At every sponsorship level, you'll get a virtual exhibitor booth in the metaverse. If you've been disappointed by digital brand pages at other online events, you're going to love running a virtual booth at Music Tectonics. Trust me, we've tested it out. We've had events here and it's a blast. We're offering the experience of a high-tech in-person expo booth at a fraction of the cost and none of the heavy lifting. Feature your videos, slide decks, graphics, and special offers so your company is top of mind with potential partners, investors, and clients. But best of all, you'll be able to draw a virtual crowd as attendees move through a three-dimensional virtual space. They can see where the action is, strike up conversations no matter where you are on the planet, and no VR headset is required. That's just one perk of being a sponsor at Music Tectonics. You could be a guest on this podcast, play a role in conference programming, and attend our VIP-only meetup in LA. Interested? Let's talk. Go to musictectonics.com slash sponsors. That's musictectonics.com slash sponsors to find out who's already signed on and start the conversation. All right, we're back. Um, we started talking about this this pendulum of how things are moving from hardware to software and back. How are things changing in the music world as more and more creativity seems to be taking place on computers and mobile devices? If you look all the way back to the, the history of Korg um, over the course of 50 plus years, without hardware instruments, I mean, is this where things are going to keep going? I know you just literally before our break said you, you never want to hear somebody say, everyone knows, but I'm curious. It does seem like a shift is happening. How do, you, how do you perceive that shift? Okay, I'm going to preface that with one of my favorite quotes of all time from John Lennon. Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. So if we'd had this discussion 16 months ago in a pre-COVID world, my answer would have been completely different. In a post-COVID world, I can say in the last 12 months has been record sales of guitars, acoustic, electric, woodwind instruments, um, uh, pianos, acoustic pianos, digital pianos. Oh my God, digital pianos. These are hardware instruments. So the everyone is using suddenly has to take a step back because there is a huge section of the people who want to make music in a very instant, intuitive way. Mm. My fingers touch the instrument and I am making music. And of course, at the same time, you only have to speak to um, 
the hardware manufacturers of recording interfaces and they'll tell you that the last year has been the greatest ever year for people building studios at home and that uh, audio interface sales have, have gone through the roof and you know um, uh, software companies have never sold as much software as they've sold which party's right there is no one party that's right There's, there is there are just different ways of working depending upon what you want if you're going to limit your thinking to, and I know, I'm not saying you, Dimitri, if one is going to limit one's thinking to top 40 pop stars, popular music, then it really is about possibly recording on computer. But, I mean, we do a lot of business in Asia, South America, the Middle East, Eastern Europe. And let me tell you, it's all about tactile and instant response. It mm. doesn't mean there's no computer music. Clearly there is. There's a lot of uh, electronic music production in every country of the world. But there is an instant thing. I mean, if you've ever been to a nightclub in Beirut, let me tell you, that's just one of the great hair-raising, extraordinary experiences of your life. And everything is instant. And that musician responds really fast. And we've, we've designed the user interface on, on, on the keyboards that we sell in the Middle East to be no menu diving is right there and touching. And now I want this style and now I need this pattern and now I'm doing this. And those guys are, you know, I mean, they've got one set of one focus on the keyboard bed at the same time as they're running the interface, bringing up different sounds, different rhythms. And everyone's way of making music is valid, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, th th there's been a growth in, in, in people learning classical instruments. It, um, there are a number of people offering online lessons for guitar and piano. There are all sorts of people going back. I can tell you that in some countries, the biggest demographic of people buying one of our digital pianos is 60-year-old, 65-year-old women, mm -hmm. and they're retired. And what are they going to do? I would like to do what I really enjoyed as a child, but I couldn't keep doing, and that's playing music. Is their music less valid than someone who's aiming for Billboard 100? No, not at all. And so you, you need to develop, not you, I'm, again, one needs to have a, a humble view of the world that we can't be prescriptive. We have to make the products. And then around the world, people will choose to use these products in all sorts of different ways. Roland didn't design the TB303 to be the essence of house in Chicago, you know, and yet that's the way those people took it. And Mr. Carter, again, Carter son, our founding chairman, used to say, sometimes we make products and we don't actually know how people are going to use them. And we're often surprised that people we thought were going in one direction have taken them in a completely different direction. Ours is not to direct. Ours is to give people the uh, the choice to express themselves in every way that they can. Love it. I, I feel like there's for the for the traditional recorded music industry, which we focus on quite a bit on the podcast. I feel like there's a reconciliation coming between this concept of developing celebrities and stars um, versus this idea that the, the the means of production are in the hands of the masses. And it's interesting that as you guys are a innovative company that's manufacturing the tools of creativity for sound and music, that you seem like you're much more closer to the, the, the people to the streets of, of what the wide variety of individual users are using, like every single potential user, regardless of whether they're going to be a, a star someday or even put out any kind of recording, is 
is a, is an input for how you think about what tools need to be made for making music, whereas the recorded industry is looking about, traditionally has been looking at ha how to amass a lot of followers for one song, one album, one artist, and so forth. It's so interesting to hear you talk about creativity. Do you, and in a way, when you're talking about, is it hardware versus software? It's both. What I almost hear you saying is for every new type of music making, every type of instrument, whether it's hardware or software, every individual model of product or so forth, you're actually unlocking the possibilities of one more or 10 more or 10,000 or 100,000 more people playing music, possibly for the first time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think uh, Korg's not unique in this. I mean, I would say that a lot of uh, modern music manufacturers are, are surprised by the breadth uh, of their audience. Um, you've touched on so many things there that, that I'd like to talk about. Record companies, I love the way you call them traditional. So what motivates a record company? If it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. That's the way they've always thought, right? So what are the biggest selling, let's just say, jazz albums of all time? The biggest selling jazz album of all time is probably kind of blue. Five million copies over, oh, I don't know, 50-something years. Um, time Out, Dave Brubeck's record, you know, the Dave Brubeck Quartet, took four years to get the 500,000 copies. But what happened in the early 60s was a, a, a convergence of, you know, youth, uh, uh, technology, TV, blah, 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 uh, Beatles being, you know, the most cliched example where record companies went, oh, my God, you can make that amount of money. And jazz and classical almost disappeared as, as record companies were saying, I want the next big, I want the next Beatles, I want the next Bowie, I want the next, and go through the 80s, 90s, and so on and so forth, and, and people will keep coming up with the next big thing. But it's, it's such an um, exclusionary process because it's not accounting for all the people doing you know, Spanish classical guitar. Uh, their records may only sell in the few thousands, but they're prized by musicians and music lovers around the world. And Argentinian tango and, uh, you know, kumba from Peru. And, and, and we can just go on and on. It, it's, a, it's a huge mistake to think that everything is just about the next big thing. Now, regarding hardware and software, I think the next biggest challenge, or we, we think one of the next biggest challenges is... If you're a young musician, let's just say back into the narrow world of the, the Billboard 100 or, you know, whatever chart you want to use, but it's about appealing to as many people as possible, young people and, and whichever variety of music it is that you want to talk about. So whatever that is, probably it's going to involve people recording at home on a computer, a DAW, um, you know, they've got a recording set up. And the thing that we've noticed is, so many people are wrestling with technology, learning how to use, name the software, name the computer, name the plugins, name the instruments. They're spending so much time learning technology. Where's the songwriting gone? Where's the instant brain to fingers gone? And look, do you think the Beatles ever worried about technology in 1962? That's what the guys behind the glass wall did. And I'm sorry, you know I'm not just talking about the Beatles. I'm talking about every act that worked in a studio where the engineers ran things. But in the last 20 years, as people have discovered recording at home, a lot of that immediate intuitive way of working has disappeared because there, 
knee deep in owner's manuals, software updates, driver clashes, and so on and so forth. So we often hear a lot of people say, workstations are dead. Why are you, is Korg still making workstations? No one wants a workstation. And yet it's a huge part of our business because people find that the keyboard's right in front of me, the menu's right in front of me, the buttons are right in front of me, I'm only a menu or two deep, and that's it. One of our most successful keyboards of the last, you know, 30 years was a thing called the Stage Vintage, now into its second series. And the entire design paradigm was no menus, not a single menu, no push button. It's knobs, switches, controls, absolutely at your fingertips. They're not just bought by older people. They're bought by younger people who want to instantly performing especially a lot of singer players, they want to sing, they want to play. They don't want to be diving into menus because I have an idea and that idea has to get out. So technology, you know, liberates a lot of people uh, and it's great I can make a, a, a wonderful, wonderfully produced record at home. But for a lot of other people, technology is a barrier that prevents the creativity from expressing itself. And so one of the attractions of an acoustic guitar or uh, a very simple uh, digital piano or you know something like the stage vintage is it's an immediate thing i know what i'm playing i'll work out the chords i've got the melody in my head i know the words you know and it kind of there at the end of the day i have a song not did i get the snare right oh, i might have to try this new reverb program for god's sake you you can get so lost in technology that doesn't mean that we don't do software. I mean, I think you know that we do. But we have to, you and I, the industry, we, have, we need to sustain the creative force. And the creative force expresses itself in a variety of different ways. Some people through technology, a huge number of people, I've just got to sing. I've got to say something. I've got to get these words out. And I, I think that's fantastic. Sorry, that was a long answer. I didn't mean to drift. No, this is this is perfect, John. I, I love what a big thinker you are. I feel like we've hit 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 a little bit of a gold mine here with you being able to just ask a simple question and then really go into the depth of all the seismic shifts that are happening, but also stay rooted to the basics of human creativity and how people make music. So this is a blast. I am loving it. I want to ask you, I want to push it a little bit further here. Sure. I, I I mean, there's all this other stuff we haven't even gotten to that are influencing how we talk about um, where things are going with music ranging from video gaming and how the kind of the world of music and gaming is colliding the world of creativity and gaming is colliding the world of of broadcast and gaming virtual reality um how people are experiencing another almost they, they call it a metaverse right a whole other plane of existence uh, that's that's not right here in the physical sense but in your mind and in in your in your creative self very much exists whether it's that experience of interaction interacting with other people or actually creating music within VR. Um, we've got everything that's been emerging with social video and, and, and social media where people are, are interacting through this use of video and it's having an impact on how people are discovering music, how people are creating short form music, 30 second snippets that end up in these viral videos. How are you thinking about all these other things that we haven't talked about that are kind of on the forefront of, of innovation and technology and how that influences innovations that might be coming down down the pike in the musical instrument world 
Boy, again, I'm sorry, but it's your fault. You just covered five <laughs> huge topics there in, in, in one thing. And I, I'll try and mi- I realize I'm probably talking a lot. You're of, doing great. We're loving this. Minimize my answers. But, you know, the first thing that we do is try and separate between the entertainment end and the creative end. So a lot of what you're talking about has got to do with the way the audience or the customer or the listener or or even the musician receives and embraces and indulges. And with all due respect, that's another podcast. And you and I can pull out a bottle of red wine and we can I can talk to you for hours about what it's like on the receiving end, but we really want to stay as close as we can to the people who are doing the creating. You know, and that um, sounds really arrogant. It's not meant to be. It's just to say it's too easy to get distracted by saying, oh, look at this thing you can do with gaming and with blah, blah, blah. Okay, I think you're talking about experiencing, and that's a great thing to experience. Let's talk about how people are going to develop content for that or going to create for that or how it's going to influence the way they express themselves for that. These things are kind of where we're at, you know. So, of course, I mean, you know, between TikTok and Instagram and 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 many other formats, people have, have found all different ways of expressing themselves. Although, pardon the cynic in me, Google's making two to three billion dollars a week, and yet on YouTube you get a million views, you get a thousand bucks. Spotify, which has thirty-five percent of the streaming market, what do they pay roughly? Four thousand dollars per million views. You know, it's great getting the views. But we would say, let's figure out how you can make your stuff as representative as you, as rich as possible, the best possible sound to give you the best opportunity so that when you go out uh, onto one of the streaming platforms, you stand out. So it's no secret that a lot of companies, including ours, have technology that allows a complete beginner, completely untrained musician to walk up and within seconds be making music, you know. I mean, in the old days of guitar, you know, the first E chord and then an A and then a B and suddenly you've got your, God help us all. You've got a thousand songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, (laughs) a million, 12 bar songs. But I mean, the point is that you only needed those early chords and you could, and the idea that you were pissing off your parents and you're on the way, right? <laughs> so with, with, with uh, um, you know, one of probably the biggest selling hardware synth of all time is the Korg MicroKorg, four voice polyphonic, um, you know, modeling analog. It's been on sale for 18 years. It still sells literally thousands every year. And I first understood the power of this keyboard when I took a prototype home and my kids at that stage were four and three, you know, and, 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 and one was five or six. Anyway, they started playing it and they, at this stage they couldn't play and they were, you know, hitting it with their fists and they had the arpeggiator on and they realized it sounded musical. It didn't matter what they did. It, sound, it didn't sound bad. And in fact, that's probably one of the reasons it's been so successful. But suddenly they worked out the tempo for the arpeggiator they changed the notes, they changed the programs, and then, of course, they've discovered the filter and the resonance, and that was it. They're, they're off. These are kids. These are barely out of ele- into elementary school. And so there's many companies that have, you know, software, put your mouse here and suddenly there's a song. I mean, it's possible to do. The Gutenberg Press didn't exactly 
produce, make everyone a Shakespeare. There's still only one Shakespeare. There's still only one Jane Austen, Henry James, Joseph Heller, you know, my, one of my favorite American authors, um, Tony Collins. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm digressing. Um, so the point is, just having the printing press doesn't produce works of art. You still have the few people who can produce and touch people, whether locally or nationally or perhaps internationally. So our, our wrestling match, to circle back to the beginning, is to come up with technology that allows people to be, to tap into the people who just want the one finger entertainment experience and, and they're making music and they sound great and they feel good. They don't want to be in a concert hall. They're not trying to express themselves. They're quite happy to just play the theme from Titanic or, you know, um, Dr. Zhivago or some other thing they grew up with. This is absolutely, we think this is fantastic. But we also understand there are people who from the ground up want to develop their own, get their own rhythms and, and, and you know, the, the background and the voice in the orchestration because they've got the song in their head and they want it to sound magnificent the way it comes out. And as I said, there are people who just want a piano with no distractions. They just want to have a set of headphones because they're in a small apartment. They know the song they want to write. They just, they just need to work it out, either musically or vocally or whatever. So our challenge is to steer away from all the not distractions, they're so enticing. It's like a dog chasing butterflies in a park, you know. You're just like, oh my God, there's that butterfly. Look, look, you know, uh, with the PlayStation, you can now this, and I throw in a set of goggles, and I can fight the... Yeah, you can. That's the experience. For the content developers, the creators, we want our tools to be give them the quickest path to professional fulfillment, whether that be the one-finger player, the one chord player, or the really sophisticated high-level Hollywood studio musician. Great, yeah. All right, look, we got to take another quick break. Sorry. And when we, oh no, this has been great. I'm having a blast. I love where we're going with this. But John, when we come back, I'd love to ask you a little bit about the impact of the COVID nineteen pandemic. We kicked off the conversation talking about you being grounded, but I'm curious the larger impact on Korg users and the company and so forth. We'll be right back. Whoa, the ideas are flying fast on this episode. If you want to follow up on anything we're talking about today, we've made it easy. Head over to musictectonics.com and find this episode on the podcast page. You'll see show notes full of links and a timestamped roadmap of the conversation. We're not responsible for internet rabbit holes you tumble down in the process. Now, let's get back to the conversation. Okay, this has been so fun. Uh, we're back. John, I, I was curious to ask you, we've talked a little bit about the, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, but what are you seeing shifting for Korg? It could be among your users or as a company as a whole. What has changed since the pandemic? The pandemic has actually had a seismic shift in the music business. Uh, when I speak to some of the biggest music stores in the world, they say that an analysis of their file shows that 70% of the purchases in 2020 were to people they'd never sold to before, oh, first-time wow. musicians. This is, I mean, there are companies that were, I don't want to name them, but dangerously close to going under that are suddenly, you know, riding high simply because so many people wanted their first guitar or I'm stuck at home 
Um, I, my kids have left home, but um, I, I now have the money. I've always wanted to buy this custom workshop guitar or this top of the range Korg workstation or, you know, something like that. So there's been a huge explosion in pianos, acoustic and electric guitar packages, people making music at home for the first time. But this is good because once... Uh, COVID begins to recede, and I'll talk about that in a minute, many of those people will go back to um, playing sports or traveling internationally or doing whatever they're doing. A lot of people are going to say, you know, I love this. This is just great fun. Um, I want to now get a better guitar. I now want to get a better keyboard. I now want to build my home studio and so on and so forth. So we think there's going to be a new generation of musicians doing things that I can't even begin to predict at the moment, that it's going to be coming in the next couple of years. It's no secret that worldwide, of course, touring stopped, live performance stopped in most markets, not all, but most markets, um, most places around the world, and everyone thinking, what's going to happen after that? Well, you know, in Australia, we've got almost no infections to speak of. I, I think the last death through COVID was months ago, wow. uh, vaccination rates high, and, and this is about science. I'm not trying to choose any color of politics. It's got, that's got nothing to do with me. I'm just pointing out that we now have um, sports events with 80,000 people attending, pubs are full, bars are full, and young people are so desperate to get away from their parents that they're <laughs> flocking to every goddamn club and, and venue that they possibly can. It's actually been extraordinary. And we, have a, we own the brand Vox, um, the, one of the legendary amplifier brands in the music business. And an amp called the AC30, the Beatles amp, you know, and Queen and U2 and many others. But it's a phenomenally loud amp. And so for a few months last year, the AC30 sales worldwide pretty much, you know, slowed down dramatically. Um, but in market after market where COVID's been successfully beaten back, Australia and New Zealand are the two obvious examples, um, AC30 sales have exploded because people are like, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be performing. And I speak to musicians that I know in my own hometown. I mean, guys, I mean, I used to be a professional musician. I know a lot of people. And they've been saying, I am booked solid. It's unbelievable. Wow. And, and local governments are putting on, you know, sponsoring buskers. Instead of shooing them away, they're sponsoring them outside every supermarket. We're just trying to get people out again and mixing with people. So it's a it's a stellar time for performing musicians to finally be able to perform again, um, and it's just if you think about it, it's natural. Young people want to meet young people. This is the the mating game. It's only you know millions of years old. So <laughs> really, I you know, and it's funny around the U.S. We can see as states open up and cities open up places are packed. I was speaking to a friend in New York just this morning who said, my God, you walk down the street and there are people out again. And it's like, why? But why would you stay home? The weather's improving. There's a chance of meeting someone new. There's a chance of getting away from your family. God love them, but I've got to get away. Even brothers and sisters going their separate ways. We can finally get out. So we think there's going to be a lot more live entertainment and we can already see it. Um, we have a brand called Sakai, which make 
really high-end premium drum kits. Um, couldn't give them away last year. Suddenly, we've got people saying, oh, I've got, I've got a customer for that because they've got a series of concerts lined up and blah, blah, blah. So we see that, um, you know, um, pre, uh, but, you know the, during the COVID, it was a difficult time for everyone. But as the vaccinations take hold, as more people become vaccinated, because the vaccination doesn't protect you, of course, it stops you latently infecting other people. So the point is that you lower the overall infection rate by being vaccinated yourself. That's the reason it's so important. And I am vaccinated. Um, but, you know, the, the more people are out and about and getting back to normal, we, we feel live music is, is, is booming again. And I can see it in jazz clubs, um, classical music ensembles. I mean, just, you know, there was a cafe that has a string quartet packed. Classical music fans, at last, I can see classical music live. I mean, this is not in your top 40 billboard uh, way of looking at the world, but these people are out there, you know? Incredible, incredible. I, I mean, we ha we recently had a, a guy named Ed Vincent from a company called Festival Pass on the podcast, and he referred to the Roaring Twenties as coming. It sounds like you also think that we're going to see the pendulum of interest and growth in the music space just explode post pandemic, which is exciting to hear about. Um, this has been such a blast. I've enjoyed this so much. I just want to ask you one more question before we wrap it up, John. As you look out at the broader culture society music industry are there other future trends or innovations that you're keeping an eye on well you know <laughs> there's always the unintended knock-on effect we had plans for product development this year that have been delayed and i can tell you it's the same at a lot of other manufacturers because we can't get components why can't be now this is just this blows my mind what do you mean we can't get cpus USB interfaces, um, A to D converters. Try and buy a graphics card in most of the civilized world. It's impossible. Do you know where they're going? All the people mining Bitcoin. Oh, wow. You know, now Bitcoin, Bitcoin energy use is equivalent to the entire power output of Argentina and Denmark combined. You know, not quite the enviro friendly uh, thing that people say it is. Now, the reason I'm talking about this is because we felt there were some things which I'm sorry I can't tell you what, what we've got planned in the next couple of years specifically, but we felt, as a, and I've given hints while I've been talking about the way people approach products, uh, intuitive music making, improving the sound performance, just different things, and we're hampered because we just can't, we just can't plan production. And we're not mm. the only one. There's many companies that just can't plan production because they can't get the components because they're being snaffled up by other people. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the uh, everyone who says they're an expert, you, you really got to wonder. I mean, you only have to look at how much AT&T is just about to drop selling uh, the Time Warner or the Warner Media division to Discovery or whoever buys it. Um, and the AOL acquisition, which was another $200 billion lost. Some of the brightest business minds making catastrophic mistakes. But what we do know is that the days of single record companies making single stars, that's disappearing. And it's going to be, all, it's all about dispersion. Everything is being dispersed. And so when people realize they can't make money out of YouTube, Google makes money, you don't. 
or even Spotify, there are going to be other ways that people combine to make music the way it was actually before the Beatles. Lots of local performances, merchandise, um, interaction with fans, and it's something that uh, um, I think you and I were, had been talking about prior to this, this conversation, um, the way fans interact with artists and the way artists perform for fans is is very different. It's no longer 80,000. Well, I mean, there's still going to be mega concerts, but for the average musician, the dream of a mega concert is not what matters. What matters is local performance and spreading, uh, spreading their name, their brand, their music in a very small way very wide and it's it's going to be done through streaming but it's going to be done through other ways as well and so what we want to do is is in summary is speed up the process where whereby people can become better performers better creators so that they can get out to that audience as quickly as possible that that would be the summary of where we are Incredible. John McCubbery, uh, VP of International Sales and Marketing at Korg. This has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're going to have to have you back. I, I, I think we found our, our, our beacon in Australia for musical creativity, instruments, and beyond. This has been a blast. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We put out new episodes every week. Want more? Find it at musictectonics.com. You can dig deeper into this episode, learn about our annual conference, get the Music Tectonics app, and sign up for our newsletter. Musictectonics.com has it all. Also, look for Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Clubhouse. And connect with me, Dimitri Vitsa, on LinkedIn. Peace. You're listening to Music Tectonics.